carrier bag model of a story is something that like holds things together, like many different, many different pieces of information, different characters, different things that might even kind of contradict each other mm. and like holds them together for consideration. And like this is definitely the model of the kind of stories that I'm trying to tell because carrier bags also can hold people. Welcome to Intention, a podcast presented by the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery, where we speak with artists about their art and practice. How do stories shape our realities, and how might they offer us pathways to new possibilities? These are questions explored in the deeply powerful work of artist Sin Wai Kin, who was born and raised in Toronto, but now lives and works in London. In Sin Kin's work, the viewer is invited to question the various binaries that frame our experience of the world through performance, video, installation, and other mediums. Sin Kin disassembles and recreates our relationship with the body, gender, authenticity, and the self, resulting in an oftentimes otherworldly journey through consciousness and being. Identifying as mixed race and non-binary, Sin Kin's work creates fantasy narratives through drag performance that interrupt normative notions of desire, identification, and objectification. Sin Kin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Neil. I'm very excited to be here. So, Kin, your artistic practice uses drag performance, video, print, installation, and other media to explore and trouble how we define our identities, our bodies, notions of self and other, which all get bound up with desires, imposed expectations and norms. And I want to focus on your use of drag. Can you tell me about the first time you decided to use drag in your artistic practice and what you were hoping to achieve when you decided to do that? Well, that's an interesting story because actually... I never really consciously decided, you know, to take up drag in order to use it in my art practice. I came to drag just through like a real love for drag. I started becoming obsessed with drag when I was 17, when I still lived in Toronto, Mm -hmm. you know, like going to like Woody's on Church Street and like going to see the drag shows every like, I think it was like Wednesdays, Fridays and Sundays or something like that. Right. And I was like really just like in love with these queens and their performance and their use of femininity as like a tool to take up space um, and really like command people's attention and when I moved to London I encountered a drag scene that was like really open that was really welcoming of like all different genders and people who are performing not as like men or women but also people who are performing as like monsters and things that had nothing to do with gender Uh, one of my friends using gloop is a drag performer who just performs as like this like amorphous green monster and I you know, stepped into drag in that context and started to use it as like a real, um, I mean, looking back on it now, a tool for Mm self-exploration to explore my own gender. So I was doing drag like all through my, my undergrad as I was studying art, but I actually never really brought it into my art practice. It was something that I thought of as completely separate. I see. And I was really hesitant to bring it in because I didn't want it to be kind of consumed in these art contexts that can be kind of like really like overwhelmingly like straight, and white 
and that just maybe wouldn't appreciate it, you know, for the purposes that it was intended, which, um, like I said, were really personal. And uh, I basically, I had a few tutors who were really encouraging me to like bring it into my practice because of course, this was something that I was doing for myself. It was very personal. It was like very um, important to like what I was thinking about in my work that I was doing in my art, in my art degree. Um, But yeah, I finally, I brought it into my practice in my MA at the Royal College of Art um, when I started to make films um, Mm -hmm. because I found that narrative cinema was like a great medium to be able to not only like present an image, but also to like narrate people's experience of consuming that image. So that was like a way to have agency over this thing that I kind of felt needed to be protected. And I'm wondering what were some of the worries you might have had in and around that decision to bring it into your practice? Well, I was concerned that images of myself in drag at the time, I really, I had one drag character and it was this really like sexualized, bombastic, blonde bombshell figure who is like a kind of like a concentration or like an idealization of an ideal of Western femininity for me. Mm -hmm. And yeah, my trepidation was that these images would just be kind of like fetishized. Right. You know, they wouldn't be kind of like understood as like a inquiry into like whiteness or femininity as it exists and as right. it's experienced by bodies. But, you know, it's kind of like a freak show. Right. Which, you know, a lot of queer imagery is taken for like in mainstream culture. That makes a lot of sense. I've read that sci-fi writers Octavia Butler and Ursula uh, Le Guin were major influences how exactly did they inspire you? Ursula Le Guin and Octavia Butler really inspired me because they showed me what fantasy can do, Mm. how fantasy can change your mind when you're immersed in it. I remember reading The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula Le Guin, Mm -hmm. and it was the first time that I was like immersed in this world where people didn't have gender, Um, in the way that they have them, like, in our world. Mm -hmm. And there were characters that were non-binary. Like, there were characters that didn't have gender. And as you read the book, you were forced to do this mental exercise, um, if you hadn't encountered non-binary people before, of imagining people without gender. And at the end of the book, I realized that I could think about people without gender. And actually, that's how I, you know, wanted to be, like, encountered as well. Right. So... It's works like that that really showed me, like, actually, this is the power of fantasy. Like, I can use drag as an embodied fantasy, and I can make films that create worlds of fantasy to immerse people in, to try to create systems where things work differently and have people kind of, like, know what that feels like. Your work is very much engaged in this fantasy creation, storytelling, exploring, construction, deconstruction. And I think what what ends up happening is you essentially are inviting the viewer into these new worlds to experience new possibilities. So given that invitation that you extend in your work, what's the best thing in your view, someone has said to you, but the impact your work has had on them. Have you had someone come to you and say, why can, wow, like I went to your show and I'm blown away. I'm I'm now seeing things this way, or you've got me thinking about this or that. I'm just wondering about reactions to your work. Yeah, definitely. I've had people who come and tell me that yeah, my work really, really moved them or really 
help them to think in a different way. Um, I think the comments that stand out the most are like often like young queer Chinese or Asian people who mm -hmm. come up to me and are just really happy to see somebody who looks like them doing well and like being visible. That's awesome. Your film Dream of Wholeness in Parts was nominated for the 2022 Turner Prize. What an amazing accomplishment. Can you tell me about that work in particular and what it was like to learn that you were nominated for such a prestigious prize? A Dream of Wholeness in Parts, I think, was a film for me that was about demonstrating this kind of expanded thinking of non-binary of moving past non-binary as being about gender to thinking about non-binary in terms of all of the kind of constructed binaries and categories of consciousness, like self and other, mm -hmm. uh, life and death, dreaming and waking, performance and authenticity, fantasy and reality, um, and how all of these binaries are linked, um, are like, you know, woven together into this reality that we live in. The elevator doors open to a long bridge across a vast body of water. In the distance, inaccessible, there are ruins of countless civilizations, including the long deserted skylines of cities that your mother and father are from what it was like to discover that it was nominated for the Turner Prize. Uh, yeah, it was amazing. I, I couldn't believe it at first. Part of me was like, no, I'm not yet. I'm too young. <laughs> exactly. So how are you going to surpass that, right? That, that pressure. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, I moved to London uh, when I was 18 years old and I didn't know anybody and I didn't have any prospects. Mm -hmm. And... You know, I did the very stereotypical thing of like waiting tables for a few years while I was trying to figure myself out. Mm -hmm. And in those years, I uh, went to see a lot of art. I went to see a lot of exhibitions. And one of them was the Turner Prize. And I remember thinking like, wow, maybe one day like this could be me, you know, mm -hmm. if I dream big. It was a really big deal to find out that I was nominated. And how does that happen? Do you get an email or does someone like call you on your cell phone? Like, how do you actually find out? Yeah, yeah, so somebody called me. Okay. Somebody called me on my cell phone. I got a strange number, which like, right. you know, normally you don't pick up strange, a strange numbers. Number. Yeah. yeah. But I had just happened to um, be diagnosed with COVID and I was uh, isolating. So I didn't have anything else to do. <laughs> So I picked up the phone and uh, the guy on the other end was like, hello, this is Alex Barkasar, the, the director of the Tate Britain. And I was like, oh, okay, hello. <laughs> he told me and I did like a silent scream on the phone. <laughs> and that's yeah, that, that's how it happened. That's awesome. Let's talk about London for a second. You were born and raised in Toronto, correct? Yes. Uh, but you're now based in London. As, as you've said, you moved there when you were quite young. What are you afforded by living and working in the UK rather than a place like Toronto? That's a really good question. And to be honest, I don't have, I, I don't think I can say like objectively what, what that is because I didn't, I don't have any experience like working or like developing my practice in Toronto. Right. 
But yeah, moving to London, London is a really uh, global city where a lot of different kind of discourses um, intersect. And um, yeah, for me, you know, I don't, I don't think my practice would be the same if I had stayed in Toronto. Mm. Part of the reason why I left Toronto was also to go very far away where, um, you know, I could become myself without, you know, the weight of other people's expectations um, mm-hmm. of who I had been before. I think a really big part of it also was the London drag scene, encountering mm-hmm. that. Uh, I mean, Toronto has a great drag scene and uh, I have been to some shows in the past, like, well, pre-pandemic, but, you know, it has changed a lot. And I, you know, there are a lot of different kinds of drag artists performing, um, which is great to see. But I think that when I went, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't see somebody who identified as a woman performing as a drag queen or, you know, there weren't that many um, non-binary performers or drag acts that were doing things that were kind of like a bit more like of the like gender fuck genre. Right. And I think it was really like only in London that I could have stepped into it in the way that I did. Um, And of course that kind of, you know, was a foundation of my practice and how it developed. Yeah, it was, it was incredible moving here and, you know, like any, any night of the week that I wanted, I could go to some kind of like, you know, feminist round table or, yeah, I think I, I really grew exponentially um, after I moved here. But uh, yeah, it's hard to say what, what it would have been if I had actually stayed. I'm thinking about your work and I'm reminded of Black feminists who often discuss the importance of connecting their personal experience to broader social phenomena in, in their work. And in many ways, this is how they theorize life on the margins I see in your work a similar path uh, from personal to social or personal to universal. I wondered if you could expand on that a little bit. One, am I right <laughs> in seeing that? And then two, any thoughts on on the intentionality there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was uh, it was in Octavia Butler's archives at the Huntington Library in LA that I found like a piece of paper, um, you know, one of her note cards on it that said, like the more personal, the more universal. Mm. And that is something that, you know, I, I definitely see in, in a lot of feminist like philosophy. Mm-hmm. We live in a culture where, you know, there is like so much um, shame in like exploring what your kind of like really personal like fears and feelings are. But like, the reality is, is that like, if you're having those feelings, then probably, and not talking about them, then probably a lot of other people are too. I'm fascinated by your interest in what you refer to as speech acts. I don't know if that's your term or someone else's term, but what is a speech act? So speech acts are um, something that I came to in uh, the work of Judith Butler, who talks about how you know, speech acts are things that can not only describe like what is going on, but can create the action they're describing. So like, as you're saying it, that is kind of creating the thing. So like uh, an example of a speech act could be like, I now pronounce you man and wife. Mm -hmm. So it's like describing the thing and it's also doing the thing that it's describing. You know, like when a, when a kid is born and the doctor's like, it's a boy or it's a girl. It's like, that Mm -hmm. is, like creating that reality as right. they're describing it. 
So is the inverse then possible? So if we think more deeply about speech or the power of speech, are you suggesting that we can create other other worlds, other realities, get ourselves out of these notions of it's a boy, it's a girl. Maybe we can utter other things and, and create new realities. Is that where you're going? Well, I think that, you know, coming back to the act of storytelling, mm-hmm. like I think storytelling in our culture, like creates reality as much as it describes it. And depending on like the position of the storyteller, like these kinds of narratives might be taken as like objective knowledge or not. Mm-hmm. I think about how in culture, lots of different kind of like technologies are like areas of like knowledge or truth production, like, you know, science is narratives that are drawn from data. Mm -hmm. And of course, the people who draw these narratives or who even ask the questions of the data are people who have like unconscious biases. So -hmm. these things are like embedded into the conclusions that they draw. Uh, Religion is always like, it starts with a book of stories. Mm -hmm. History is storytelling, narratives, that are defined as truths that we then teach in schools as truth by like people who won the war or like I think anybody who has an experience of like learning history in Canada can attest to like, you know, learning that pioneers settled in Canada and met the First Nations people and (laughs) everybody got along and they taught them how to like put fish in the ground to, you know, like nourish the crops or whatever. And like, that's it. Right. Or that or that there was no slavery in Canada mm-hmm. and the Underground Railroad, like, you Mythology. know, like yeah, yeah li- liberated enslaved people in Canada where there, you know, where that's like not right. like that's not the truth. Or like, you know, you watch the news, like a news anchor is a storyteller mm-hmm. who is somebody who is like delivering objective knowledge or what you're told is objective knowledge. So like, yeah, storytelling is something that creates realities, you know, and of course storytelling is filled with speech acts. Like storytelling is like a larger, Mm -hmm. like constant speech act. Storytelling is how humans understand our place in the world, how we understand our relationship to our context and our relationship to our body. And like, you know, the tension between those two things. And it seems to me in your work, you're deliberately intervening in that uh, storytelling and almost saying or showing the viewer their artifice, how they come to be created, and how in turn they can be changed. There's always the possibility of change, it seems, in your work. Yeah, absolutely. Another work that has been like very influential to my practice is an essay by Ursula Le Guin called The Carrier Bag Theory of Fiction, where she talks about like two different models of storytelling. Um, The first being like the hero narrative, um, which she uses uh, a metaphor of like a spear or like an arrow for, and the other being the model of like a novel and specifically like a science fiction novel that she uses the the metaphor of like a carrier bag for. Mm -hmm. So she talks about how in hero narratives, which are the kind of dominant structure of a narrative in culture. I mean, if you look at like basically like 99% of the films that have been like in theaters for the past however many years. You know, you have like a hero who's usually the kind of typical cisgendered, heterosexual, white male, blah, blah, Mm -hmm. has like a thing that he has to conquer, 
you know, so he goes and he punishes the villain, you know, using violence and then wins the girl or whatever, and then is the hero. And this is like a very didactic story. It goes like straight down and there's not really much room for like consideration. Whereas Mm -hmm. like um, a carrier bag model of a story is something that like holds things together, like many different, many different pieces of information, different characters, different things that might even kind of contradict each other Mm. and like holds them together for consideration. And like, this is definitely the model of the kind of stories that I'm trying to tell because carrier bags also, you know, can hold people, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's really, I want my, I want my works to like really carry people and, and hold them for like the time that they're experiencing them. Yeah, I see that with your use of characterization and these constructions where you'll see in different, I guess I'll use the word iteration or in different works that they change. And sometimes they're doing one thing and other times they're doing another and and they're sort of always morphing. It's almost like you're interested in showing, as you mentioned, contradictions or showing, you know, the falseness of dichotomies and, and this sort of thing. So I very much see that in how your use of character, how do you come to realize the characters? Do they just sort of evolve or over time? Are you inspired by a particular, you know, character that you read or you encounter and then you sort of extend on it? I, I'm wondering if you could just talk about your use of character and characterization my characters, they usually have a kind of particular binary or a particular like area of like research or interest that they come out of. Mm-hmm. So for example, like my first character was really about this like internal exploration of like what what my relationship to like Western femininity was and like mm-hmm. what it could be. And it was through this like embodying and disembodying of this character, like many times that I realized that I wasn't a woman. Uh, Another character is the universe. Um, And the character of the universe's makeup is inspired by the Jing or the warrior role in Cantonese opera. On his face, there's like a flower that covers like different um, senses, like the leaves are over his eyes. Um, There's the bud over um, his third eye, the stem comes over his nose and the roots come around his mouth. Um, and it sits in a landscape of the kind of world that the flower is growing in, which sits itself against the backdrop of the kind of like you see like the stars and um, other cosmic, another cosmic body in the background. Mm-hmm. And this character is to think about um, a binary of an individual and its context. And together, those things are the universe. Another character is the storyteller. You know, I've been talking so much about storytelling. Storytelling is a really an important like technology that I think that I think about in my work. And so to have, you know, a character who embodies this act of storytelling, he usually appears as a news anchor, you know, makes a lot of sense to think about the position of the storyteller in culture. You're also uh, thinking about culture. You're also interested in engaging with pop culture and boy bands and different forms of pop culture why are you drawn to that in your work I think um my draw towards boy bands I can't say that it like started like academically (laughs) you know (laughs) it was really like when I was a kid I really was like obsessed with boy bands yeah like I was like what is it about 
these men, these boys that I'm just so, you know, I thought I wanted them. Actually, the reality was that I wanted to be them. Mm-hmm. But this is also, you know, this kind of like, do I want them or do I want to be them is like um, this like intense desire that's like provoked in the creation of boy bands that is like very on purpose for capitalism is something that, it, that I use like in the construction of my own boy bands. Right. So what happened was um, it was 2020 and I was like going through a breakup and isolation and I was running every day and I was just running to like NSYNC. <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing. You're talking about a very <laughs> tough time with a breakup. I know, but it's no, like it's, it's funny. Cause I was like, literally just like, like blasting through the park, like to like, I want you back, you know? <laughs> And yeah, I was like, I think, I think a lot of people had a kind of, you know, turn to like nostalgia, like in that time, like either mm-hmm. through TV shows or like music or whatever. But yeah, like for me, I was also going through like a big transformation in terms of like uh, my gender, taking my first steps towards like um, masculinity um, in a way that I kind of had never allowed myself to before. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to, like, figure out where my masculinity sat. And so I thought, like, what better device to play with this than, like, a boy band where you have, like, all these individuals that have their own kind of, like, unique, like, constructed personalities. So, yeah, so I constructed a whole bunch of personalities for myself. And actually, you know, they all ended up being me. But that was also the idea of the work was to, you know, like through the kind of medium of a boy band, think about how uh, a multiplicity exists in one body um, and also to think about a community as one body. I'm curious, what are you working on now? And is there anything you'd like to share about what's coming up in your world, in your practice? So at the moment, I'm planning bunch of different projects for uh, next year but I have been doing a lot of research into um, the theory of general relativity um, and time to think about how time just like space is not fixed is not absolute and you know everybody actually has their own experience of time And this, for me, really feeds into, you know, how in this world we don't live in, like, one reality as much as, like, some people would love us to. Like, we live in a world where everybody kind of has their own experience of, like, what reality is. And all of these things, you know, they exist together, like, often not very easily. Like, we live in a very polarized society at the moment because, you know, people still think there's kind of, like, one truth. So it's really, I mean, research phase right now, but like, yeah, thinking about how do you think about time in a time-based media like film to describe, you know, the subjective experience of, of existing in the world and trying to think of some new characters that would help me to describe this as well. Amazing. We like to ask guests on the podcast a question, or rather, we like to ask guests to ask a question for upcoming artists. And so our previous guest asked this question, and I'm going to just give it to you and see what happens. Is hope important 
do we have to have hope to build a future? Um, I think hope is important, but it's important to be specific about that because, you know, sometimes hope is not really useful if it is preventing you from being realistic about the situation or if it's preventing you from really being present to like what is going on. Mm. So I came across this quote recently and I can't remember where it's from, but I remember writing it down in my notebook, which was uh, give up hope for a better past. Mm. And I think about that a lot because, you know, change is such an important thing in our world is actually the only constant in our life is, is change. Mm-hmm. But there are things that you can change and there are things that, you know, you can't change. And of course, that's not a solid line. Right. But, uh, you know, if, if hope can motivate you to create narratives and images of a future that you want to be part of, then that's great. But I don't think it's useful to just only have hope. It has to be kind of catalyzing something. Thank you. You hit that out of the park. Wow. Thank you. (laughs) And then I guess I'd like to ask if there's a question that's top of mind for you that we can ask a future guest on the podcast. It can really be about anything. My question for the next guest is, what is the story that you encountered in your life that changed you the most? Well, Ken, this has been a, a real pleasure And uh, I really want to thank you for uh, the time and your engagement with, with the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor. Intention, presented by the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery, is made possible with the support of Canada Council for the Arts. We thank the diverse mix of Canadian contemporary artists for sharing more about their lives and work. This episode was hosted and created by Neil Price in collaboration with the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery team, Beverly Cheng, Daria Sposobna, and Zachary Skola Allison. This show was produced by the team at Edit Audio. This episode was edited, mixed, and mastered by Ali Sirwa. Our executive producer is Steph Colburn, and our production manager is Kathleen Speckert. Show music is by No Cliché and Mopao Mumu. Mumu.